The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Speaking before the Senate Banking Committee earlier this year, SEC Chief Jay Clayton explained his views on the rapid rise of cryptocurrencies. The funny thing about these cryptocurrencies is they only work if they're integrated with They only work for their purported purpose Mm -hmm. if they're integrated with the financial system. And that integration is top of mind for the SEC official overseeing regulation of the cryptocurrency agency. Joining us is Ben Bain, Bloomberg News financial regulation reporter who's written about the SEC's new crypto czar. So, Ben, tell us a little bit about her. She's a 20-year SEC veteran. Why was she given this job? Sure. Thanks a lot. Um, so yeah, uh, Valerie Sapanek, as you mentioned, you know, 20 years in the agency, and actually in the agency's enforcement division. Which uh, you know, if if you think about kind of the the famous cases that the SEC has brought against big Wall Street firms, uh, that's the unit that does it. Uh, this new job is in a different division, which is more focused on kind of corporate filings, uh, some of the more mundane aspects that the SEC does. So what they did is they they tapped Miss um, Sapanek, moved her over into this uh, kind of uh, less threatening division. And the idea is to get crypto firms, which are kind of notoriously uh, reticent to engage with government. Uh, certainly it has its, um, you know, very kind of uh, libertarian uh, origins, uh, cryptocurrency, to come in and talk to the SEC so regulators can get a little bit better idea of what's going on. They've spent the last year really trying to get their arms around this. And I think the hope is uh, that the regulator is going to be able to uh, engage more by having someone who's not in enforcement uh, reaching out to the industry. So uh, what do analysts say? Does the SEC have its hands around crypto now? Well, if you look at the numbers, um, you know, the SEC, uh, you know, has been warning about the dangers of initial coin offerings. Um, the chairman, uh, you played a clip from him earlier, has warned that, uh, you know, this market is kind of rife with fraud. But, uh, you know, in June of this year, it was a record month for ICOs. More than five and a half billion dollars were raised. That's according to coin schedule data. So, you know, what we're seeing is, uh, yes, certainly the SEC has a much better idea of where things are than they were uh, than they did a year ago, let's say. But it's still very much, uh, you know, a quick changing market. And and they haven't been able to uh, to, you know, to stop firms from from raising money in what they say are uh, unregistered securities offerings. So, Ben, as you write, the Justice Department, Commodities Future Trading Commission also have people involved in this. So what is Sapanik's approach and how is she going to work, if at all, with those other agencies? Yeah, I mean, I, these, these regulators, they all talk to each other, you know, all the time. I think what, what, what we're seeing happening here in Washington with cryptocurrencies is it doesn't really fit neatly into 
the jurisdiction of any one of these agencies. So the SEC, you know, they're responsible for overseeing securities. So you think about stocks, you think about, you know, kind of traditional uh, equity-like products. The CFTC oversees commodities. Um, you know, so you have all these different agencies kind of trying to figure out uh, their lane. So when it comes to, to you know, uh, Ms. Sapanek's job, uh, she's going to be dealing with uh, how the SEC looks at securities, which, which you know, the SEC has said a lot of these initial coin offerings are, but also um, the broker-dealers that, that work in them, uh, you know, banks and investment funds that are increasingly trying to get involved, uh, and, and also exchanges or platforms which haven't registered uh, to actually be trading these things, which the SEC has also warned them about. So there's a whole bunch of things on their plate, not to mention, uh, you know, the push for an exchange-traded fund based on cryptocurrencies, which the SEC rejected uh, again last week. So you talked about all the regulators trying to find their, find their lanes with regulation of crypto. Where's Congress? Is, is, is it doing anything to try and clarify this? Does it plan to? I mean, so so far, uh, Congress has kind of stayed out of it. Um, there's been a couple of bills, uh, you know, that have popped up but haven't really gone anywhere. Um, and it seems like right now uh, there's nothing on kind of the front burner. Congress uh, hasn't said, you know, who's ultimately going to be responsible. What we kind of have to remember when we're talking about cryptocurrencies is that in the spot market, right, we talk about the cash market, so who's trading cryptocurrencies, we might think about um, – no regulator really has clear direct jurisdiction over that. So there's a question about whether Congress needs to come in and say, hey, SEC, you handle that, or hey, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC, you handle that, or Treasury Department, or, or another regulator altogether. So uh, the short answer is no, Congress is focused on other stuff <laughs> right now. <laughs> So, Ben, you say that she's going to try this less confrontational approach. How long will she try that, and when will that turn into a more aggressive approach? What would make her get more aggressive? Well, I think, I mean, what the SEC says is that they, they are being aggressive. Uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, they're going after um, instances which they, you know, consider to be kind of blatant violations, uh, you know, fraudulent uh, type of uh, action, uh, you know, going on in these markets. But uh, at the same time, what they're what they're realizing, what they've come to realize, is that to really understand these markets, they need to have you know an, an open door, if you will, uh, the ability for firms to come in. So I don't think they're necessarily you know exclusive uh, in the sense that I think they can continue to have Ms. Sapanek, uh, you know, having uh, firms come in and 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 some of the other uh, divisions that aren't enforcement. Uh, you know, trying to get their hand, hand heads around this market. But at the same time, uh, you know, we understand there are there is a lot of enforcement activity. There's been several cases, but, you know, we understand there's a big pipeline as well. Before, and, and you mentioned that she, she also knows jujitsu. Jiu so, so, that's what I was going the, to go for. There. Oh, a little there bit you of go, a personal. <laughs> Uh, yes. Yeah, so yeah. Should, yeah. So the crypto companies take take anything away from that? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's uh, you know s certainly you know an interesting uh, an interesting element here. Um, you know, kind of someone who practices jujitsu in her in her spare time. Um, you know, not a, you know certainly someone who's who's going to take this very seriously. Um, and it, you know, she she was kind of one of the first uh, regulators here in Washington to start paying attention to this. Uh, even like six years ago. Um, you know, she was she was kind of poking around and digging around. And at that point, um, I'm not sure too many of us had ever heard of Bitcoin. Well, um, Ben, we have to end it there. It's a really interesting article. And yes, she also has an engineering degree, a different kind of SEC person. That's Ben Bain, Bloomberg News, financial regulation reporter. 
Two jury trials, two convictions, a seven-month prison stay, two appeals, and two convictions tossed out by the Second Circuit. But now the five-year legal odyssey of former Jeffries Managing Director Jesse Litvak is over. Federal prosecutors have decided not to try him for a third time for fraud for lying to clients about mortgage bond prices while negotiating trades. Is the federal crackdown on questionable bond trading tactics also over? Joining us is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell University Law School. Bob, the Second Circuit threw out Lickvac's conviction on technical legal grounds, but found there was evidence enough to support the guilty verdicts. So after all the effort the prosecutors put into it, are you surprised that they gave up? Uh, you know, in, in a way I am, and in a way I'm not, June. Um, so, I mean, basically there's been an ambivalence when it comes to this particular charge, All you know, sort of right from the get-go, right? The, the ambivalence is basically this. What do you do uh, in a case where there's no question but that the defendant has done something wrongful, but there is question about how much the victims, you know, sort of were responsible themselves, how much they should have known. It used to be that the rule that we had was we'd say, look, just be honest, you know, as far as the defendant is concerned, just be honest. And we, we're not going to require anything in particular of the alleged victims. Um, and then, you know, sort of over time, in order to kind of lessen the number of cases that were actually brought before the courts, uh, the courts began to sort of fashion a, a sort of a halfway house doctrine where sometimes they'd say, well, you know, if the victim should have known better or was savvy enough to know better, uh, we won't actually recognize an action against them. And there's been a kind of a back and forth over that particular issue under the rubric of so-called materiality, oh, for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, it looked like we were kind of going back to the old ways or in recent years where we were saying, just be honest. Um, but then all of a sudden, the Second Circuit weighed in, uh, as, you, as you just noted a couple of times. Uh, and I think that's done either of two things to the Justice Department. They've either decided, well, all right, we can't really win these cases anymore because the courts are beginning to get a bit more strict again about which sorts of suits they'll let go through. Or they've just decided that they don't care that much about this sort of thing anyway. Are there any um, other outstanding cases out there that might be affected by this? Yeah, yes, there are. There are a number of other uh, defendants, uh, as, you, as, as you guys know, who have been uh, being in, investigated and prosecuted along with Mr. Litvak. Um, and I would say that between the two Second Circuit, uh, the recent Second Circuit decisions on the one hand, and the DOJ's uh, decision not to kind of keep pursuing this on the other hand, uh, this might, you know, sort of be good news uh, for those other defendants, even if not exactly for the bond markets. Litvak's arrest in 2013 sent shockwaves through Wall Street, mm -hmm. and there was the resignation, suspensions of mm -hmm. dozens of traders. Did it change behavior in the bond industry at all? Well, it, it, it seems to have induced a little bit of caution, which is exactly what the point would have been, right? The idea of a, of a sort of a high-profile case like this is to send a signal, right, to tell the, the, the traders out there and the, and the bond sellers out there that, look, we're not going to let you rest on the possible sophistication of your victims when it comes to sort of policing your honesty in these markets. It's always easy to tell the truth. Just say what you really did pay for the bonds, uh, and that will be the default rule. And that seems to have had an effect, right? I mean, people seem to have been a little bit more careful for a while while these suits were pending. I suspect that uh, they're probably now thinking, well, all right, thank God that's over. That five-year nightmare is done. We can get back to business as usual as it was before 2013. When you when you look at the cases, do you see mm -hmm. failures on the prosecution's part, or was it just that the appellate courts changed the rules? 
I think it's more the latter, uh, to tell you the truth. I mean, I think that the, the prosecution did a, a fine job. I mean, as, as good a job as can be expected. I think they made the case quite well. Um, you know, and it, it was there, there was no question, right, but that these were just flat-out misstatements of fact that were made uh, by Mr. Litvak and by other defendants in the same sort of set of suits. Um, so, you know, I, I, I find it hard to fault the prosecution in all of this. I think it's just a case of the Second Circuit not exactly changing the law, but once again kind of pendulum swinging in the direction of uh, permissiveness, uh, which again tends to happen, right? We seem to go through cycles on that under this rubric of materiality. Sometimes they'll sort of really hit materiality hard, sometimes they'll hit it less hard, and it's always basically riding on, well, to what extent are you going to give the defendant a free pass when uh, the alleged victim, quote-unquote, should have known better. In other words, you can always decide to say caveat emptor, or you can decide to say, well, no, not caveat emptor, but just let the sellers be honest. Uh, And we seem to swing back and forth uh, on that one uh, over the years, and uh, it looks to me like the Second Circuit has just decided to kind of swing back in that kind of caveat emptor direction again uh, after about five years' worth of of um, uh, caution-inducing. So, Bob, is the crackdown over then? Can traders rest easy? Well, I, I very much hope not, June, but it's, you know, I, I don't see a lot of reason to, to say no um, at, at this point, right? I mean, all of the indications at this point seem to be that the Second Circuit's going to be a bit permissive again when it comes to uh, stretching the truth uh, when you're selling uh, something in the bond market. And it's looking as though the Department of Justice is not inclined to fight that uh, at the present time. There's a certain irony, of course, in this, uh, given that we were told during the 2016 campaign that uh, the guy who ultimately won, uh, whatever his own business dealings, was at least going to be uh, a bit of a sheriff where Wall Street is concerned. Um, but it's kind of looking like we're returning to, uh, you know, again, businesses pre-2013 usual uh, on Wall Street. Uh, and it seems this, this DOJ is okay with that. Bob, what does this say about the system itself? Because you have Jesse Litvak, who I assume insurance paid for two jury trials, you know, mm-hmm. two appeals. I mean, mm-hmm. the amount over mm-hmm. five years, I have no idea what the cost would be. But yeah. A, a person who wasn't insured or didn't have money couldn't have gone through this. Yeah, I, so I think it's a, I think it's a nutty system. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't think there's much that can recommend it. Uh, the easiest way to fix it, it seems to me, would be for Congress uh, to pass legislation that clarifies that the anti-fraud provisions of both the 33 and the 34 acts really mean what they say. And among the things that they say is, you, you know, thou shalt not lie. And the, you know, the sophistication or otherwise of your victim is sort of neither here nor there. It's just irrelevant. We should simply Bob, we have to end it to there. complete honesty. We, mm-hmm. Thanks so much, okay. as always. That's Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell University Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.